This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, New Orleans public school teachers are now on the priority list for the coronavirus vaccine, and shots will be in some arms as soon as this week. Last week's cold weather resulted in rolling energy outages for three times more New Orleans residents than was necessary, and energy is taking some heat. Some prisoners at the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola have gone on a hunger strike to protest their treatment. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hey, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. And the Lens editor, Charles Maldonado, also joining us. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Marta, up first in education, NOLA Public Schools are beginning teacher vaccinations this week. All educators of all ages are eligible. They got bumped up last week to the list. What kind of progress is being made with school employees as of right now? Yeah, so it sounds, obviously, this was very exciting news for teachers and their families and school staff. And it sounds like they are making more progress than they thought. Um, On Tuesday, there was a a school board committee meeting where the district said that they thought they would be able to vaccinate 750 school employees, but that they're actually thinking they're going to be around at least 1,000 people vaccinated this week, just in that teacher and school staff category. What's the overall population of eligible people? The district said that it sent out surveys to 8,000 eligible employees. So um, my presumption is that that's a combination of uh, public school staff and um, teachers specifically. And at least 5,000 of those people responded, 75% of which said they were interested in receiving the vaccine. Uh, That other uh, group of people who said they weren't interested uh, basically said they weren't interested at this point in time, but not that they weren't interested overall. Okay. And what's the process like? How are they how are they rolling it out? It's kind of complicated because it's not quite uh, so centralized, right? You know, the schools uh, can't provide these vaccines themselves that, you know, we need healthcare professionals to do that. Um, so it's a combination of teachers seeking these out on their own. And also the district is working with uh, partners such as Children's Hospital. Um, and I know they also are really happy with the partnership they have with New Orleans East Hospital, which actually has a mobile vaccination van that's going around to school sites um, and vaccinating teachers who are interested. Hmm. Okay. Uh, back to the hesitancy for a second. You mentioned that 78% said they would get the vaccine and then others are saying not now. Do you assume that based on how some people respond that the hesitancy will decline as time goes on and they see their peers being fine? It sounds like it will um, and that people are one of the most uh, useful things I think healthcare professionals have said is that, you know, seeing examples of people getting the vaccine and seeing um, people having, you know, successful uh, results with the vaccine is encouraging to other people. Kind of like what I said before, the district's chief operations officer, Tiffany Delcor, said, that the main reason people were hesitant to get the vaccine uh, right away was um, just generally, you know, how fast this vaccine was approved. And I, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people have been thinking about. So if, you, if you've had any, you know, negative interactions with the medical system or you've seen negative things in the past, that might cause you to hesitate. But generally, most educators are interested in getting it uh, right away. 
this survey is just a reflection. It's nothing specific about educators. It's just a reflection of broader trends that we've seen, you know, prior to the emergency authorization of the first vac vaccines, we saw hesitancy numbers, I believe, somewhere in the 50s, you know, 50% or so. Right. And that's been steadily going downward as more and more people have been getting vaccinated. And, and I think the fact that people are saying that most of these vaccine hesitant people are saying um, not no altogether, but just not for now is probably a sign that they're they're probably going to be willing to get vaccinated sometime in the near future after they've you know after they've seen some of their colleagues do it. I'd like to add, by the way, that um, this um, progress in vaccinations among teachers goes beyond Orleans Parish, at least in one metro area parish. My wife is a teacher in St. Bernard Parish, and when these eligibility groups first got announced, the district said that. In the vaccinations they were giving out, they were going to be starting with uh, with older teachers, teachers over you know over sixty or over sixty five. But within a few days, they had announced a new partnership, and now uh, it's open to all teachers in the district. And my wife is getting her vaccinate first vaccination shot this morning, actually. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, Marta. There have been a lot of home visits to address the truancy issues or the, the delinquent issues. How is that going? Yeah, we know that the district has visited 850 student homes so far this year. And so uh, those students that they're really having the, the most trouble connecting with, you know, missed more than 10 or 15 or upwards of 20 days or so. And they really kind of feel that that is a last resort is to literally like show up at the house and let's let's figure out what is keeping this kid out of school is it a technology issue is it a you know accessibility issue and and what can they do to help uh, reconnect that student to their education okay and do they report back when they make those visits what the problems are we don't necessarily have a, a breakdown but um we did have a, a district official this week said that among those families that they're visiting at home many of them are families that they've interacted with in the past so maybe who are having truancy issues in the past and then also that they're just seeing kind of a common theme of you know anything that could keep a kid out of school whether it's a literacy issue with the child or the parent um, or just economic insecurity housing insecurity food insecurity issue that you know those that's something that those families may have been experiencing before and it's just um, been amplified by the pandemic so kind of a lot of those you know security issues and just basic life necessity needs do you know how often those home visits result in a resolution? In other words, that the, the child ends up going back to school after that visit? I don't have any numbers on that, but I do know, I, we talked with the school counselor in December, and she said that even a, a difference from her making a home visit to a, a police officer making a home visit could kind of bring a level of seriousness to it that maybe um, helped you know, kind of the parent or the family realize that, you know, we want your kid to be in school because that's where they're learning and, and that's where, you know, they can get a meal and we want them to be in school for the right reasons. I don't have any numbers on that, but uh, hopefully those those visits are resulting in positive impacts and uh, certainly not negative ones with the um, criminal justice system. Right, right. Well, good news about the vaccine. Yeah, and hopefully we might even get some more numbers today. There's an Orleans Parish School Board meeting, so... Maybe we'll have an even bigger update. That's great. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, 
government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Michael, we're still talking about the cold from last week, record cold last week. Utility company Entergy shut off three times as much power as it was required to, according to uh, their own spokespeople at a New Orleans City Council meeting this week. What did you find out? Yeah, so, so it's probably easiest to start with what happened. So New Orleans is no stranger to, to uh, power outages. We, we have a ton of them. But the vast majority of those outages come from failures on the system. So usually that's a downed power line or a car hits a utility pole or a cat gets electrocuted or you know any of the, the various excuses we've heard from Energy over the years. That's not what happened in this situation. So rather than this being a failure, this was more of a conscious decision to stop something even worse from happening. So this is a story that happened, you know, probably most well known in Texas, but throughout the South during this cold front. Um, And basically the the general story here is that because of this unusually uh, cold temperatures, people were using way more energy than usual just to try to heat their homes. At the same time, the the cold was causing issues on the generation side. So um, some plants aren't weatherized, for example, to to work in freezing temperatures. So they couldn't be supplying that energy onto the grid. So the last kind of piece of the puzzle here is that if customers are trying to pull more energy off of an energy grid than is available, it can lead to really catastrophic um, uh, results. And, and, you know, we're talking about transformers exploding, you know, months-long blackouts, you know, really um, dire situations that can occur. So before that happens, what, what, you know, utilities will do and what energy, you know, systems will do is intentionally cut power to some customers so that demand does not exceed supply. We don't reach that kind of uh, really catastrophic situation. So it's a rare occurrence. Um, so, you know, and, and there were a couple questions about how decisions were made about, you know, who was going to get their, their lights turned off, who was going to keep their lights on. So the council called this this meeting to, to ask some questions of these executives. Now, there was an unexpected um, revelation during this meeting. So what we found out is that Entergy had to shut off a certain amount of power. They were told that in order to avoid this very catastrophic situation, you need to shut off XX amount of energy. Now, Accidentally, it, it seems that Entergy actually shut off three times the amount of power than they had to. Entergy is still finalizing those numbers. They were, you know, they said that over and over that the, you know, these are still estimates and it's going to take another month at least to really know. But yeah, it seems that it was accidental. Um, we don't know exactly why. It seems to be the results of some automated um, programs that they have. We don't have all the answers yet, but we do know that a lot more power was shut off that night than had to, and that included. 
um, restaurants that were seeing good business. It, it, you know, it was it was Mardi Gras night, so you know we're talking about restaurants that were seeing good business for for the first time in a long time. Um, we're talking about senior um, um, housing in New Orleans East, um, where where people had to stay in the cold. And th- this wasn't a super long outage. This was under two hours, but. Um, Obviously, when your lights go out and it's very, very cold out, you know, it can cause some anxiety. So I think that there are some questions about what this process will look like moving forward. If you are a news junkie, you've learned about how Texas worked and why the failure, because Texas is is in charge of its own grid. Uh, we are not in charge of our own grid. Like the rest of the country, we are attached to something bigger. Can you explain how that grid works and how the calls happen? Yeah, MISO helps manage, you know, these big regional energy systems. And and so so I'll start with the reason why you want to be involved in one of these, you know, regional transmission management systems. And and that's because it really helps make sure that again on a regional basis that energy is coming into the system at, at, at the rate it needs to. So they can manage things for example you know if we have to take a power plant offline to do some maintenance miso is keeping track of what's happening in arkansas so they may say don't do maintenance that day because there's three other power plants in arkansas that are going down and if you take your power plants off the line we're going to see a shortage in the region right? right so so things like that that you know you can't really know on a local level um and so the same goes in a situation like this where you start to see demand um outpace supply Fly. So before before these rolling blackouts were instituted, MISO, you know, sent out warnings, you know, to all the utilities. Um, you know, you may remember that, you know, some people got texts from their utilities that said, please lower your, your heat, please reduce um, your electricity. And so that was kind of the first step in this process where MISO said, you know, warn your customers, try to, um, you know, reduce this load um, so we don't have to institute rolling blackouts. Mm-hmm. So that didn't happen. And then basically how it works is that they sent a notice out to all the various utilities that that are under their um, kind of purview. So we're in MISO South. So that covers Arkansas, the majority of Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, um, and then a portion of Eastern Texas. And basically MISO South sent out a a, a notification to everyone, uh, all the utilities and said, you need to reduce your power by X, by X amount of megawatts. Um, For Entergy New Orleans, we were specifically told to reduce usage by 26 megawatts. What ended up happening is we shut off over 80 megawatts of power. So again, that's the the real issue here and and why so many city council members were very livid. All right, let me ask a question about what you said a moment ago. You said something about that after the text alert went out asking customers to shut off lights, to, to conserve if they could, and that didn't work. Those, I think, were your words. Does that mean the customers didn't respond and, and the grid didn't ease up? The energy use well, didn't ease up? Is that what you mean? Well, I, I'm not sure if the issue here was that residents or customers weren't, you know, responding to that call enough. Um, you know, again, these are really complicated events that I don't think Energy could even answer these questions right now. It could be that, you know, after they sent that alert, another generator went offline or it got colder. So, you know, if you had a central air unit set to 69 degrees, your power usage went up whether or not you tried to raise the temperature or not. So okay. things like that, it, it's really complicated. So exactly the thing that pushed it over the edge, um, I, I'm not sure. Okay. Now though, back, back here on a very local level, the call comes in that we're, we're not able to sustain this level of energy for everybody that needs it. We need to institute some blackouts. Locally, there's a decision that's made somewhere. Someone then has to shut down some power. How do they choose 
the locations to shut off? Yeah, and this was really one of the core questions that the council, you know, originally had had wanted to to get answers for before the meeting kind of got derailed by um, this other thing that came up with the three times as as much power. So basically what was explained at the meeting was that they can categorize different parts of the city based off of what they think will be, you know, the least and the most impact on public safety and public health. Um, So what we learned is that they have kind of four categories that they use. The lowest priority category um, that, you know, that they'll shut off power to first is mostly residential. And it seems that after that, they try to avoid cutting off power to commercial properties and then obviously any um, critical infrastructure. So, you know, if if hospitals or um, the police station or fire department, you know, you don't want to be shutting off power to those institutions. So they try to map out, there's something called feeders. So they can turn on or off a a individual feeder that will take care of a certain portion of the city. Um, So they go through each of those feeders and they give it a category zero through three, three being the lowest priority, zero being you know the, the things that you really don't wanna shut off like your hospitals and, and so forth. Another thing that the council wanted to question Entergy about was the fact that a sewage and water board facility got shut off. Now that should be in one of these more critical infrastructure categories. Um, you know, this, this facility helps us um, treat water that we all drink, right? So, so perhaps could have led to a boil water advisory if things had gone worse. The answer we got to that was basically that Entergy needs to go through and re- review some of these categorizations that they've made, um, and and to you know make sure that you know they haven't mistakenly you know missed any critical infrastructure on the, on any of these other feeders. So um, that's the answer we have on that right now. Why would a building like the Superdome and giant office buildings on Mardi Gras night, which are unoccupied or have a reserve power that they can just run off a generator for their emergency lights and whatnot. Why would those stay on above a residence, a residential neighborhood? I think that's a question a lot of people were asking. And I think that was happening in a lot of other cities too. People were asking why the downtowns were all lit up and everything. I don't know the answer and maybe Michael can offer a little more on this, but I, I, I do assume that that the reason these downtown areas aren't getting shut down and rolling blackouts, or part of it, is that is that apart from the empty office buildings and and sports stadiums, um, these downtown areas also have major hospitals and other infrastructure that are highly prioritized. So they're probably connected to. You can't just pick the Superdome, for example. Yeah, I would, I'm not an expert, but I would venture to guess there, there's an inability to yeah isolate those buildings. But I, I was wondering about that because people were pointing out in Austin and other Texas downtowns where lots of people didn't have power and it was very yeah. bright downtown. Right. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things to consider. I think that why it seems so kind of crazy, you know, from some of these social media posts. I mean, number one, let's remember the time we're in. I mean, there aren't people in those office buildings. Um, you know, you know, all, all, a lot, you know, there are people in the Superdome, for example. I, I think that one reason why you might want to leave the Superdome out of this scenario is that these decisions have to come really quick. So, you know, again, MISO sent out this, this message to shut off power and there was 30 minutes to respond. And so you can imagine if, if there had been a football game going on, you know, you may not care about the Saints, but, you know, there's tens of thousands of people in that stadium. 
Um, do you want to be, you know, shutting off power to that if you don't have to? You know, some of these big office buildings, you know, do you want to be shutting off their elevators and making people, you know, right. climb down 40 floors? So I think there's a lot of considerations in it. Uh, um, you know, I, I totally see uh, the critique that, you know, value in commercial properties over residential is, is problematic. But again, when it comes to utility stuff, you can always go down into a deeper level of complexity. I mean, these decisions are really, really hard and complex. Um, and, and there's definitely reason to keep the lights on in, in downtown areas. Yeah, I mean, is it is it really commercial versus residential though, or is it infrastructure versus residential? It is. So, so, so on the categorization system, the lowest priority that they'll shut off is all residential. Right. Uh, the the step after that is a mix of residential and commercial. Um, the third step, I believe, is mostly commercial, and then the fourth category is that you know critical infrastructure. Right. Um, and well, I mean, there's a lot of critical infrastructure in downtown areas. Absolutely. So. But in enter, but it is interesting that in Entergy's categorization system, explicitly residential properties are lower priority than commercial properties. Sure. Um, so, sure. you know, that, that is interesting for sure. Is it actually like lower density residential areas or is it taking into account like stoplights and major intersections and stuff like Charles mentioned with infrastructure? They didn't mention anything like that. Um, you know, uh, we were only getting a synopsis of what these categories are. My, my guess is that the like three sentence explanations we got for each category is not giving us the full picture of the, the inputs there. I, I did want to bring up another question that I saw on social media in response to our, our story, which was regarding the New Orleans Power Station in New Orleans East. Now, that, that's something we had covered. It was built, you know, over the last couple of years. And one of the ju main justifications for, for building this plant was peak load. So, so really exactly what we saw in Mardi Gras night. It, it's for times when energy usage is much higher than usual. Um, and they said, you know, as these things happen, we're going to need a plant like this to be able to turn on quickly and give us that extra power. Now, the interesting question here is that that consideration isn't actually up to us locally. Right, so all the, the power generators we have go onto this grid that is managed by MISO, this regional operator. So I think that what I'm really curious about is whether the existence of this New Orleans power station, which we, you know, we're told would help us in these peak times, whether it actually did. So I'm curious, for example, would we have been told to shut off more power if we didn't have knots? Or did we just marginally reduce the power for all the utilities throughout the region? You know, did this benefit us directly or did it benefit the system or uh, again i think that it's a very good question that i'm trying to get to the bottom of mm. um but it, it, i'm working on it but i did want to acknowledge that, that is a very interesting question because uh, we saw it a few times michael is there any i know we're more protected than texans because we have the regional power grid is there any indication we're going to see any billing issues or increases in rates like like texans have seen I think that we'll probably see some increases based off of, you know, fuel pricing, for example, I would assume went up based off of, you know, regional shortages. You know, it's always safe to assume with energy when something like this happens and, and you know, that there's going to be extra cost to customers. Um, but yeah, we'll be looking out for it. But there's no indication that it'll be these sky high rates that... Uh... No, 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 no. Yeah, it's not the same type of like market pricing um, that, that Texas receives. Tell me what city council is doing. This information that, that Entergy apparently shut off three times the amount of energy it had to, you know, we weren't expecting that piece of information that day. Um, and so it was kind of sudden, but, but council member Helena Moreno and the rest of the council kind of immediately took action on that. Um, they announced that um, actually today they'll be taking a vote 
um, to uh, officially open up an independent investigation to what happened with these rolling blackouts. One council member, Jared Brossett, mentioned the possibility of fines, which you know the city council can do as the regulator of Energy New Orleans, something they've been doing uh, more in recent years than they have in the past. But uh, yeah, I mean, they were, I, you know, for anyone that listened to the meeting, I, you know, I, they were really, really mad and really, really frustrated. They weren't even expecting to deal with that as an issue that day. You know, again, they really wanted to get into what neighborhoods were chosen, why, and there wasn't even a chance to really get to that. So again, they were really mad. And, and so they've opened up this investigation and, um, you know, our utility advisors are going to go forward and we'll see where it goes. You said it was an accident and that, it was likely the result of, of them just implementing a kind of an automated process that, that ended up shutting down too much. Is there any reason, I mean, that, I assume that's what Entergy said, is there any reason to doubt that? And if you do take their word for it, I mean, how big of a sort of failure is that? Is that like something that seems, as you said, these are complex decisions, is that something that can like, is a reasonable failure or is that the council obviously was upset about it? Um, where, how do you gauge how, how bad that is? Yeah, I, I it's it. That's a really good question. I, I think it's something that we're going to find out through the council investigation, just how much this was, you know, incompetence. So, so actually, in the middle of the meeting, the, the energy um, representatives were, were really kind of failing to answer a lot of the council's questions. So they kind of demanded that. David Ellis, the CEO of Entergy New Orleans, hop on the call. And, and something that he stressed is that like these events traditionally rarely, rarely happen. Um, so, so what it seemed like to me is that this is a process that Entergy rarely goes through um, and doesn't expect to happen on a regular basis. And, and maybe for that reason, having gone back and checked over to make sure their programs are running well, to run tests or whatever it might be, it seems like this issue, because it hasn't been present in, in a while, kind of got pushed to the back a little bit. You know, again, there didn't seem to be a lot of knowledge among the Entergy executives there about how this program worked. My guess is that behind the scenes, they're gonna be taking a, a very close look at this, but we'll, we'll find out whether this was incompetence, whether this was reasonable or unreasonable or what. Here's the other interesting thing. You also have to estimate how much power, if you shut off power to the X city blocks, right? Um, how much power is that gonna be? So there's also issues, you know, maybe they did the last measurements in like 2007 when the city was a little emptier. Um, you know, maybe people use more power today than they did 10 years ago, or maybe, you know, it uses average energy usage rather than this peak energy usage. So there's a ton that could have gone wrong um, because again, it, to, to give energy a little bit of slack, you shut off the power with the expectation that it'll shut off, you know, a certain amount of power, but, but how that actually ends up, you know, you don't know. So I don't know. Also with this algorithm, I'd be so curious. You were talking about how there's tiers, like, so is it always going to be those neighborhoods first? So, you know what yeah, I mean? Really interesting. It's not. They're rolling blackouts because they're only supposed to be for like two hours at a time. And then they shift to a new neighborhood. I think that if your neighborhood gets chosen, that you get pushed to the back of the line at that tier for the next time we have to do this. Um, so there's, there is some system where you don't have to do it every time. Thanks, Michael. It's complicated. It's great. Nick, disturbing story out of Angola State Prison. Several prisoners went on a hunger strike there. What do you know about it? How many people were involved? When did it start? That's, that's sort of disputed. I talked to eight prisoners there who said that they started a hunger strike last week on, on Wednesday of last week. The Department of Corrections has, has only confirmed that three prisoners were taking part in a hunger strike, and they said that it didn't start until Monday of this week. So... 
It's not entirely clear. Um, one thing that, that these prisoners said was that the prison was trying to ignore the strike and that they were sort of not following proper protocols, such as like marking down when they weren't having meals and not sending um, medical personnel to, to check on them frequently. Those sort of actually fundamental basic questions are kind of in dispute right now. Okay. But the general reason for the hunger strike is not disputed. Are they all saying the same thing? Yeah. So that, that was an interesting thing is that the prison basically confirmed the, the complaint that, that these prisoners had, which is that they're being held in disciplinary segregation, um, which means being held in their cell for over 23 hours a day and only let out to shower. Uh, and they're being they're being held there past when their time should have been up based on kind of the the disciplinary procedure at the prison. So they have sort of a, a sentencing matrix where if a prisoner uh, violates a rule, they are then adjudicated through this disciplinary board, and the board gives them a certain sentence based on this uh, this disciplinary matrix to go into disciplinary segregation, so a certain number of days. So some of these people were given only a handful of days, but had been in there weeks. Some were given several months in it, but had been in there several months longer than than their uh, than the, their punishment called for. What is involved in, in disciplinary segregation? What does that mean for a prisoner? Well, I'm trying to find out more from the prison about what they actually, you know, say about it. I can talk about what the experience of, of the prisoners who I talked to said said their experience was, and that that was uh, restrictions on, you know, they haven't been outside. They don't get any recreation time. They aren't allowed to have their personal property, so no no books, no things like that. Some some people told me that they had legal documents that people had been working on their cases, but they weren't able to access that. And multiple people told me they weren't allowed to wear underwear, so they had a single jumpsuit that they were wearing and a single blanket. So many described being very cold as this uh, cold front came in, uh, in in North Louisiana. So, you know, you, you can imagine just a generally uh, kind of un, very unpleasant experience. I will say that some, it's, you know, there's kind of a dispute over whether or not the term solitary confinement can be used. I think the ACLU has used that, <clears throat> has argued that anytime you're held in a cell for more than 22 hours a day, it's solitary confinement. Some of these people do have cellmates, so they're not being held entirely isolated, but they painted a, a pretty bleak picture of, of what what they were dealing with. There's no dispute that it's being held in a cell for something like 23 hours a day. Yeah, no, I haven't I haven't gotten any pushback from from the Department of Corrections on, on that. Um, but like I say, I'm trying to get, trying to get exactly how they how they would define it. Can you clarify that this is a separate this is being taken to a place that is not their normal cell? Yes, yes. Okay. They've, they've been put there in response to this disciplinary infraction. Okay. And some are saying that this was supposed to be 10 days and it's stretching on for weeks, months. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the prison is saying that they're unable to transfer them back to their normal setting because? Well, it's not entirely clear what the, the, the prison says that, that there is not adequate bed space for their, the specific housing needs of these individual prisoners so the way i understand it and i'm trying to get gather more information is that after someone's been you know d 
discipline. Basically, their their case goes back in front of a different board, um, a classification board, which then determines the appropriate housing for this prisoner, not in not as a disciplinary measure, but as a safety measure. So they would take into account kind of, I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of speculating here, but the person's uh, disciplinary history, the nature of their offense, I actually think that this is what the prison said when they were talking about, yeah, the, uh, depending upon the nature of the appropriate housing, bed space may not be available. Can I ask you, is, is there's, there's sort of, there's something like a step down unit between disciplinary segregation and being let back into general pop- population? That's my understanding. Yeah, there's something called preventative segregation. How that is exactly distinct from disciplinary segregation is something that I don't totally understand. I'm, I'm really trying to get the disciplinary policy from, from the prison to, to get more information on that. But officials at the prison are saying that they would progress them through the next steps, but they're unable to because they don't have enough space. Is that right? Yes, that is right. So that begs the question to me then, if if it's just a matter of space, why can't they treat their, let's call it solitary confinement, as the, as the physical space? Why can't they still have all the amenities, for lack of a better word, that they would be afforded if they were in the general population, even though they're housed in a different section? Do you see what I mean? Like, why can't they just yeah. go out and... That, that's a good question. and. I don't have a clear answer, but my guess is that these specific housing units are run, you know, with a certain number of staff and there are policies and procedures put into place. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into in, in a in a prison, especially I think probably in a restricted housing situation, in letting these people out. Um, you know, you have to I, I think sometimes have more than one prison staff or guard to, to let an individual out. And so my guess would be that that kind of implementing individualized programs or pr- procedures for giving these 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 individuals more privileges than than others may be complicated by that, but I'm not entirely sure. That it, it's a good question. What's the recourse for someone like this? Is it their own attorney? Is it someone from the ACLU? Is it Amnesty International? I mean, who who can help? Well, so prisoners can file um, basically complaints within the prison, which is necessary if they want to file a lawsuit. There's a, a law passed um, back in the 90s, I believe, called the, the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which basically was trying to cut down on, on prisoners filing too many lawsuits uh, against the prison. So basically, they need to first prove that they've exhausted all sort of administrative remedies to their uh, situation. So yeah, a few people that I talked to did say that they had filed filed complaints within the prison with with the intention of then, yeah, eventually filing a lawsuit claiming civil rights violations against against them uh, for the conditions that they're being, being held in. Are they still on hunger strike? How many are? So as of Tuesday evening, uh, the prison confirmed that, that the three that they had confirmed in the first place were still on hunger strike. Um, I haven't gotten an update uh, since then. I have heard uh, through various sources that some of them have been moved. I don't know necessarily where they've been moved or if it's much of an improvement from where they were being housed previously. 
it's it's not clear exactly what the status is. The prisons won't provide me with specific names of the three people they say were on the hunger strike or and potentially still are. That say that they can't do it for HIPAA reasons. So it's not not clear. I'm hoping that I, that I get an update sometime today. It's excellent reporting. Thank you for that, Nick. Thanks, Jeff. good week. Thanks. Thank you. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.